0: Welcome to The Disenfranchised, helping you to find a career path away from employment by exploring the franchise community. My name's Ed Pennell, and I'll be speaking with the entrepreneurs, experts, and leaders from across the franchise community, discovering their life stories and hearing their tips for success away from the typical nine to five grind. On this episode, I'm speaking with Henk Posmus, the franchise partner of Expense Reduction Analyst, otherwise known as ERA. Henk is based in the Netherlands and has joined the brand in 2009, having recently renewed his license. The company focuses on providing cost optimization solutions to SMEs and corporates around the world. Now, I know Henk pretty well. Um, I've worked with the Expense Reduction Analyst brand for three years and... I haven't really asked him all about his business and how he got started, how he got into ERA, and and why he's successful. So I'm I'm really curious, actually, because um, you know you see v- people at varying levels within franchise brands, and I know Henk is one of the successful ones, um, very successful ones, I should say. Um, so I want to find out what why he loves what he does, um, why he didn't start on his own. And, and how he became so successful. So hopefully you guys can get some insight from this conversation too. So uh, catch you on the other side. Okay, so Hank Posmas, welcome to The Disenfranchised. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. And great to be here. Fantastic. Good to, well, good to be in this, uh, good to be in your podcast at uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> well, f- thank you very much for for listening in the past and for um, agreeing to be on here. It's um it's it's, it's interesting because I was thinking about what am I going to ask you um before before recording and obviously we we kind of know each other a little bit and met at a couple of conferences and things um and I know the business pretty well that you're doing but I realise I actually don't really know your story that well and I don't really know. That much about you outside of that work context. So I'm quite ex- excited to find out a, a little bit more about Henk the person, and and also find out, you know, why you are successful. Because um, I, I know you as a successful guy, and it'd be interesting to see your thoughts on on why that is. So um, before we go into all of that, though, I wanna I want to kind of kick off with um, your first job. So what was your first job, Henk, after um, education?
1: Well, actually i gave that some thought and i actually think i should start before uh, finalizing my education Um, my first job actually was when i was already in high school Um, i actually was a well help for a mobile supermarket and uh, you in the uk you have milkmen delivering milk at house at homes Um, we in the 70s 80s used to have mobile supermarkets and my uncle had one Um, and i actually started working for him on Saturdays and in vacations. Um, And that did two things for me. First of all, it taught me how to be commercial. Um, It had um, quite a few, uh, let's say, challenges in that sense that we we deliver fresh goods to homes and so on so at the end of the week you had to take care that there was not too much fresh goods left yeah um otherwise you would obviously overstock or you had to eat it all yourself or you had to freeze it or whatever so that was one and the other and so it was always a trick to manage that stock level and on the other end make sure that um well your, your your commercial uh, let's say offering to your clients was so good that uh, they would actually buy it uh, if you need to get rid of it. So that commercial game was—I uh, I really liked that. That's that's one thing. Um, and the other thing was well, it actually taught me because obviously my uncle was an independent. Um, uh, uh, yeah, say so he was he was an entrepreneur. Um, it also taught me that entrepreneurship was actually not too bad at all, uh, even though. Uh, Coming from a family of entrepreneurs, I must say my my mother and my grandmother, uh, my mother being the sister of the uncle uh, yeah. always hated the entrepreneurship because uh, in the past it was not always uh, let a good job uh, that uh, my grandfather did and so he was an entrepreneur himself and he didn't always he wasn't always very successful and they never were in poverty but it was never good uh, good business for them so yeah uh, that that actually was what it taught me that it could actually be good uh, to be an entrepreneur.
0: Um,
1: And then I finalized education. Actually, I graduated as a chemical engineer. um, And that, um, let's say, commercial experience led to the fact that I actually always have been in sales. Uh, I've never been an engineer. I've been trained as an engineer, but I never worked as an engineer. But I've always been in sales and marketing ever since. Uh, I think due to that experience as well.
0: Sure. So I I was going to ask, what was actually your role then with your uncle? So um i imagine it's kind of like a, a small van or a, a small truck or something like that that you take <laughs> actually, around were you kind of the one running out with the the milk and the, the eggs and things or were you a bit more yeah, involved well, in the back office part of it That
1: no, it was really it was really let's say uh, uh it, it was actually not a small van it was actually an old city bus uh oh, wow. and he, he transformed that in transformed that into a mobile supermarket so uh, and, and we basically stocked well, everything you can find in the supermarket today, just on a much smaller scale. So whether it was soft drinks or beers or wines or uh, vegetables or milk or cheese or butter or whatever it was, he had just about everything, just about one of everything or two, uh, not the 50,000 versions of coffee you can buy today, uh, but you just have heard about everything. Um, and uh, my uh, involvement was... Um, well in the day-to-day delivery so yeah uh, running with the goods uh, but also uh, making sure that at the end of the week uh, the goods were sold so making sure that if there was a let's say too much bread in stock uh, that at the end of the week that bread or at the end of the day actually with bread actually the end of the day that bread was actually sold as much as possible Um, otherwise again we had to freeze it and we we were eating our own bread for weeks in a <laughs> row, <laughs> from the freezer. So uh, yeah, so that was uh, so I was not involved in the admin. I was more involved in the day-to-day operation, but make sure that at the end of the day there wasn't enough m- much stock left. So I was in a bit in the in, we were the logistics operation, so delivering door to door, and I was in the so bit in the sales side of it, making sure that everything got sold in time.
0: Okay, cool. So that's given you a, a good grounding in the commercial world, then. So, yes. What, why in education did you go on and, and study engineering? Then it's it's a different world, isn't it? Really.
1: Well, yeah, it is. Um... Um, uh, when I graduated high school, um, <coughs> uh, in, the, in the Netherlands, obviously, we have a different education system than than you who do in the UK. But then when, when we had what we called alpha and beta profiles, alpha profiles are the let's say, language profiles and, and history and everything, and the beta profiles are the... Um, well, mathematical and whatever the more exact okay. profiles, and uh, I had the most beta profile that you could have. So uh, it was obligatory to do Dutch and English, uh, but uh, all the rest were all uh, beta beta uh, uh, grades. So I did chemical, in, I did chemi- chemistry, I did physics, I <clears throat> did different levels of mathematics, I did biology. So everything was focused on that beta side, uh, and it was only logical for me to uh, let's say. Uh, do any type of, uh, let's say, technical grade. Take a technical education, um, but I also learned uh, in that period uh, when I did that that uh, my heart really was in in sales and marketing. So my first job, actually, my first job after education, was actually selling sale selling glazes and then really wall and floor tile glazes to the tile industry uh, in uh, in Italy. So uh, hence I speak Italian because I've been in Italy for a few years as well.
0: Fantastic. So h- how how did that career progress then from, from there? So, you know, selling glazing um, to, to where you are now. Could you talk us through some, some of the ki- kind of key highlights?
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I, uh, I started selling glazes in Italy. Um, Let's say got a bit bored with that after about three years and then uh, I ran into and, and just picture we were talking about my first job was actually in 84 and it was 84 was a crisis situation uh, which was I think all over Europe was crisis so it was very hard to get a job in the first place uh, but I did get a, a, a three job offers at that time. Um, and uh, uh, then after three years, I decided to move on. And I remember I applied for thirteen jobs and got twelve offers. So, I was, <laughs> um, I, and I was nice. actually disappointed I was turned down for one. <laughs> <laughs> i remember that (laughs) Uh, and then i joined a japanese company um, which sold uh, process uh, sensor equipment um so i was actually in charge of their flow metering and pressure metering and thermometer business uh, across europe Um, and did that a few years uh, and then moved on to a a, the dutch branch of a danish company who had just acquired their own um Distributor in the Netherlands uh, and doing more or less the same thing, uh, selling um, uh, yeah process sensors uh, into the Dutch market. Uh, so talking to the chemical industry, but, uh, also the food industry, and all the all different types of process industries um and in that company the danish company actually made my career uh, moved on from a, a sales from a sales guy to a product manager to a sales manager to a division manager to managing director of that company um and uh, that that company had more divisions so i turned uh, i actually became managing director of uh, the, the, a spin off of, of one of the divisions which is the refrigeration wholesale business um and uh, after the spin-off was done, I noticed i realized and that was also the reason why the spin-off was done. I realized that uh, the spin-off was actually not a core business of that company anymore, so there was not going to be any more investments uh, It probably was going to be a, either a divestment or a sale, but not there was not directly imminent, So I got a bit bored with that. And then I moved on to another wholesale company, which was more or less a similar situation. An American company bought the local distributor in the Netherlands, and I became managing director of that one. Uh, Did that for nine years. Uh, That was until 2009. Um, Yeah. And the rest, then I joined ERA. So uh, I've been managing director for the last 15 years, uh, last 15 years of my, let's say, payroll career, if you wish.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. It's quite a, a diverse and varied set of products that you've um, yes. worked with over the years and, and, and in, in different capacities, but-
1: But always uh, technical products and always in trade and wholesale, uh, if you wish, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess that kind of engineering background has really helped you to kind of understand the the world from, from, from a technical perspective to then allow you yeah. to have that um, yeah. commercial Um, presence where you you seem like an expert or somebody who knows a bit about the industry or or, or are somebody who knows about the industry which is also
1: also in those years also in those years uh, uh, over let's say from 90s and early 2000s i also uh, was educated as a, a business economist i was educated as a marketeer so i have and i have three degrees actually i have to a, a chemical engineering degree I have a business economics degree and i have a marketing degree so pretty broad experience if you wish and broad education as well so
0: yeah perhaps you can share one of the, de- the degrees with me i don't have one so <laughs> seems like you're being greedy there <laughs> but uh no it's just
1: yeah. work it's just work
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that's it that's it but um I, I i've got to ask um which company turned you down or what was the role that turned you down <laughs> um actually
1: actually it was funny because when i was when i was in education uh we had we uh, there was there were three apprenticeships uh, in that period to do uh, one of my apprenticeships actually was in the US. Um, so, uh, but the, one of the apprenticeships was also in a local dairy company, and following and and I got very let's say good satisfactory grades and good referrals from that uh, great from that dairy company. It was actually that dairy company that turned me down when I applied for another <laughs> job there. So, uh, either <laughs> was too good, or uh, but they, they've never told me why. And the other and, and uh, obviously. I didn't bother too much. It was just that 13 out of 13 would have been nicer. <laughs> <That's what's-
0: laughs> nice to give you the, the perfect record. Yeah. But- right. right. Okay, cool. So uh, you mentioned their expense reduction analyst, ERA. Um, so you started there in 2009, that's right?
1: Yes. So my let's say my last job change was in 2000. And, and already at that time, I was considering uh, becoming an entrepreneur, Uh, Actually, looking at some franchises already, um, uh, I say, well, maybe it was lucky, maybe I was unlucky, but I I just happened to run into another job pretty quickly uh, at that time. Um, So I took that job instead of, uh, let's say, uh, investigating entrepreneurship further. And in 2009, it was just the right moment in that sense. Uh, Then uh, then it all fell in place. So, um, uh, leaving that job in 2009, I was basically saying, What am I going to do now? I'm going to go, Am I going to find another job um, and repeat what I've done a few times or start something or do something for myself and and utilize my experience? If you wish for my own benefit Um, so this is where i started investigating actually becoming an entrepreneur Um, and i I do remember there were actually um, four options i had on the table at that time so first of all was becoming an employee again uh be on the payroll again Um, the second one was to start my own company Um, the third one was to buy a company the last one was to join a franchise or whatever um and at that time i thought well you know being on a payroll i can always do that Though, uh, even if i start something and it goes wrong or whatever if i take one of the other three options that goes wrong i can always join a company again and be on a payroll so i'll take that risk and and and, and become independent um and the other two so the the, the start and the, the purchase i just didn't pursue that further uh, for actually for a very important reason first of all i noticed that I'm not very good at repeating jobs so i'm not very good at doing three four years the same thing and i know that if you start a company it's pretty certain that for the first few years uh, you're being you're going to be pretty repetitive unless yeah. you have some type of facebook style company which is going to be a unicorn or whatever well i <laughs> didn't picture myself doing something like that um, and the same thing actually applied by quite for acquiring a company if you acquire a company obviously the amount of money you probably have available does not allow you to buy a a large size company so it's going to be a small scale company and you're probably going to be in the same situation as well Um, so for me that was something like again i can always do that again so that's why i investigated uh, franchising any further
0: Um, and and, and so and so had you heard of franchising at this point is that something that was
1: yeah but i already investigated franchising in 2000. um i already yeah i, I do think i was actually on some type of franchise exhibition at a time um again out of interest but not really as a, as a uh, well i didn't pursue it at that time but i was already go diving into it i, I already got some documentation yeah. there is a franchise um Yeah, branch organization here in the Netherlands, where I do have some uh, franchise association, where I did get some, um, let's say, uh, information from, their brochures, Uh, they had a franchise book with franchise opportunities at that time. So I I was already diving into it a bit. So it was always in the back of my mind uh, since then at least. Um, So for me, franchising was not something that was totally out of the blue. Um, but my um, <clears throat> what what I really was looking for was obviously a franchise that fit me, and I was not I'm not a McDonald's style guy, or yeah. I was not into let's say the hospitality style. I was really looking for a a white collar uh, franchise, if you wish, um, something in consulting or business services or whatever. Um, and, and that's actually what I started looking for in, in 2009. Um, and I actually found another franchise in the first place. Uh, then I actually joined. Um, and I got some information from let's say the franchise intermediary, uh, which uh, he explained to me what that actually was. He said, but and I do remember that conversation with him very well. He said, I'll tell you everything you want to know about that franchise. Uh, but I think I have something else for you which fits you better. And then he actually uh, referred me to expense reduction analysts, um, which was at the moment I saw that that for me that was that was the point where I thought, yeah, this is it. This is exactly what I need. This is exactly so, so, what I'm looking for.
0: So this this uh, intermediary, it was like a broker or something like this, yes. was it? Somebody yes. who'd help you to find the right franchise for you. Okay. Yep. Yes. 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 And, and so what were you looking for at that that point in time? What was the what was kind of on your checklist, so to speak?
1: Yeah, well, on my checklist there were a few things on my checklist. First of all, um, um, uh, having always worked in international companies, um, the international side of business uh, appealed to me. So I was I was really looking for something um, that allowed me to work in international surroundings, uh, even though the majority of the work is in the Netherlands. But at least there is an international. Yeah, group of people around you network around you um, so uh, uh, and being able to work with international clients uh, that, that that opportunity was there um, and the other thing was that within a franchise um, I wanted to have the opportunity to build a business as i would like to do it so uh, and 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 that's one of the particular things i like about expense reduction analysts is you basically can build your business the way you want to build your business whether you want to be a single person only selling and only selling in let's say an area like London or Amsterdam or whatever, you can do that. Um, but if you want to do it uh, uh, with uh, a staff, uh, build uh, a full practice uh, with experts behind you, etc., you can do that as well. You can do that uh, in one country. You can do it in more countries, and that's what I. what that's actually what was what I was looking for. Is have. say have the freedom but within the limitations of a franchise so that's 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 what i was looking for and that's actually what i found in in era
0: fantastic so um i I want i want to kind of go go back a little bit and kind of understand from you a, a bit more about the the concerns maybe you had with starting your own business or starting a franchise what were the things that you were perhaps looking for that franchising could could offer you
1: Um, well, uh, you you have to, when you you join a franchise, there's always the, let's say, uh, the deliberation between do I invest in something like a franchise or do I start something myself? And honestly, when I saw the business model, well, first of all, I thought I could do it. Second of all, I thought, why didn't I think of it? And (laughs) um, uh, 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 because... The business model itself is pretty simple uh, the, the trick is in how it is actually performs it's actually how it's done and 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 the way it's executed and um and that was actually what i think a franchise brings is uh, there is a proven methodology there is a proven model uh which if you follow the rules um you're starting much faster than when you can on your own so If I would have done this, let's say the same similar services as I do today within Expense Reduction Analyst, I would have started this on my own. Well, you have to build your own model, you have to build your own website, you have to build your own marketing, you have to build the the brand recognition, everything, brochures, everything you have to do from scratch. Um, That alone takes time, takes money um, or less income or whatever. Um, And then you must see if that is actually going to deliver the results that and faster than a, a franchise can so that for me was the real um let's say challenge and and well deliberation actually between uh, what is the um whether to join a franchise or or actually starting this this type of thing on my own Sure. um and and the concern well obviously the concern is am i going to be Making money on this? Uh, will I make money on this? Uh, and I said that was the first thing. That was the first thing that actually popped to my mind when I saw that business model. And I, my first reaction was, I can sell this. This, this, this is. This is. This is. This is I mean, this is so risk-free low risk, if you wish, um, I can sell this. And, well, we've proven that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, no. that was a funny one. I do remember this in the uh, due diligence process. Um, the broker gave me uh, three names to call, uh, three existing partners to call. Uh, and one of the partners actually, he was an analyst, and he actually told me, you know, it's very nice business it's very nice Uh, I really love what I do but it's difficult to get clients so well I can solve that for you
0: (laughs) very nice yeah that's
1: that's what we did so
0: (laughs) (laughs) excellent so I I was going to ask you a little bit about the due diligence process um, but but before I do I I wanted to find out um, how involved your family in, in the decision making because ultimately you know the the investment of a franchise license whichever brand it is yep. that's typically a, a, a decent chunk of money isn't it you know and um whilst you you, you felt it was relatively risk free there's still a big risk attached you know whereas going on your own you perhaps invest a little bit less takes more time but you know you haven't got that big upfront or bigger upfront payment so yeah how how involved were your family in that decision making
1: um, well, there's my wife, uh, and uh, she has been involved in that right from the start. Um, so, uh, and, and and she has met the broker a few times, and uh, at that time the area developer a few times as well. So uh, she was she was involved in that decision, uh, and we don't have any kids together, so uh, there was nobody else to to take into account. Uh, she's been involved every every step of the way, and uh, she knew what we were going to do. She knew what the commitment was, what the risks were. Um, and we decided to go for it
0: cool excellent so in in the due diligence process then um, obviously you was working with a broker w- what were they kind of guiding you on in terms of what to look for within the franchise or
1: um, well so the most important and I think that was I actually think that that hint he gave me to look into another franchise than I was actually looking at at the time was already, say, the first part of that role is to see what is the, the real match between the guy who's sitting up across the table and, and the franchises I have to offer. So I think that, 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 that in the first place was it. Um, and um, the broker um, guided me through the process in the sense of, um, developing the first business plan, or at least a rudimentary business plan, how to look at the business, um, some key data uh, from, uh, let's say, experience from other franchisees, etc., uh, which then later were more or less validated by the due, in the due diligence process. Um, uh, so, and yeah, that was that was that's basically the role I see uh, the broker did, and. I was, I've never been disappointed in him. Uh, I think he did a good job. And well, again, we have the history to show it. So
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's for me, sort of um, thinking, you know, put myself in your shoes, back then, it's, there's quite a lot to consider in that due diligence process, you've made it sound quite simple and and, and easy there. But I think, you know, when you look at a franchise contract, it can be quite daunting, right? So Sure. Uh, how did you find getting your head around you know what does this all mean for me in the long term because you know it's a lot of information to take in
1: it is um at the same time um in the meantime that uh, uh, i had done a discovery day um in, in those days we still did them physically <laughs> it's just a little yeah. part of these times but uh, we still had them physically um, um I think that a, a let's say a franchise, buying a franchise is, is basically getting into a relationship together, and uh, uh, and 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 having a relationship together also means there has to be some trust um, in 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 a cooperation. Uh, so I think that was that was the first thing that the uh, discovery day did uh, was to. Well, show me that it was a serious business behind it. There were serious guys behind it, but also that in general you can trust them. They're more or less doing. They're saying more or less saying what they're doing, and they're more or less doing what they're saying, etc. Um, so. Um any questions I had uh, related to that uh, franchise agreements and yeah it is quite daunting. I don't remember, but I think it was sixty four pages or something. Uh, pretty pretty extensive documents. Um and uh, uh, there's a lot of thou shalt not uh in that um <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, or thou shalt. Uh, that's also that, uh, that that type of things. Um uh, and, and, and i I'm, I'm not saying that in those Twelve years in the meantime, there's never been any dispute between me and the franchise orders. There's been a few, um, but again, as in any relationship, uh, if the aim is to solve it, and if the aim is to, uh, uh, said, to continue the relationship, uh, you solve them, and we did. So uh, we've always found a way forward uh, that uh, was, uh, yeah, workable and satisfactory uh, for both parties. So
0: yeah, yeah it's, it's really important that trust piece isn't it and um sure. like sure. you say finding finding a way to work together and uh, i'm a strong believer that if um if you don't get along with the the people you're buying into the brand that you're buying into you know stay stay clear because uh if everyone down the line when things do inevitably get tough you know and there's some difficult conversations to have uh you, you don't want to be te- tearing chunks out of each other you want to be able to to talk through it. Properly yeah. and and find the solution, like you say. So, uh... yeah.
1: Yeah. To, to, to tell you a funny story on that side, um, <laughs> actually, um, you don't you don't know the former AD in the Netherlands. Uh, you weren't there yet at that time. Um, but actually, the former AD and I were the the AD who signed the agreement with me. To wish to say that, um, he actually he and I actually never got got along, and we knew I knew that right from the start. I met him. Oh, wow. um, um, I remember that my my decision-making process was actually pretty fast. Um, I remember I have uh, my first meeting in May 2009 with the broker, and I was in the foundational training in the end of June of 2009. Wow, that's great. It was actually like five, six weeks or whatever. Um, And due to that speed, um, so the first two or three meetings were just with the broker, Um, and then there was the discovery day. Um, And between the last meeting of the broker and discovery day, there was no room at that time to meet the AD. So the AD and I actually decided he was going to pick me up from the train, drive me to the discovery day so we could actually meet in the car. And the moment I got out of that car, entering the discovery day, I knew we were never going to be friends. (laughs) nevertheless i joined uh because i believed in the model i believed in the franchisor behind it and um and i believe in the creed and i've i've always lived that creed i believe in the creed that you that means myself i am responsible for what's happening i'm not depending on anybody else it's not anybody else's beautiful stories and that i think is also a big lesson for franchisees you are responsible for your own business you are responsible to run your own business um, and it it's the very simple great if it is to be it's up to me that's actually what i believe and um, so the moment i thought i don't like this guy i thought but i don't need him either because it's going to be up to me i need to do this so um, that's why i decided to join anyway
0: yeah, interesting to so hear somebody with the, the, the other point of view. So thank you for share, sharing that, Hank, because yeah, I, I talk about it a lot and think that it's really important that you can find somebody you can 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 work with. But I guess. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to get on with every single person within the franchise, correct. or correct. Right. Correct, but it's
1: like it's like in any, it's like in a corporate world. Like, so we have we have what, twenty five people here in the Netherlands, twenty five franchisees in the Netherlands. It's it's an illusion to think that you will like every twenty five of them. It's you will never do that. And in the UK, you have over a hundred. There's always going to be people you like better than others, and that's fine. Uh, that's that's how it works in the corporate world as well. Um, it's just that you need to find the right people to work with. And I knew that again, we did the due diligence. So I spoke to some other franchisees and I knew, I've, I found out how they ticked in uh, in that process. Um, and I knew that, well, I can do this and I want to do this. So that's why I made a decision.
0: Cool. So you, you said that it's your business, it's your responsibility to, to make it work. Um, Again, this is just coming from where I would feel maybe looking into any franchise brands and, and kind of, um, yeah, my, my thought process, maybe a little bit on it is, uh, and, 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 and because I've got that, I'm sure other people will be thinking the same. Um, is, does it really feel like your business because it's operating under somebody else's brand, of course, but, and guidelines and tools and things like this, but does it actually feel like your, your business? Like 100%.
1: <laughs> well, as I said, I said it before, it's being independent within the rules of the franchise, right? So, uh, uh, in that sense, it's not totally independent. I mean, I cannot just do as I wish, if you wish. um uh, So, uh, in that sense, it's not totally my business. Um, but uh, it's, let's say, as I said, it's my responsibility to be successful, it's my responsibility to make it work. Um, and it's it's not let's say full independence it's interdependence and that is yeah. not only with the franchisor it's also with other franchisees right so that again this is one of the things i really like in the era model is the fact that delivery is usually done with more people than just one uh, which is First of all, it's more teamwork, and you're actually having more conversations with people, meeting more people, so you're not entirely on your own. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also quality assurance, because if I mess up, somebody else will say, you messed up, and uh, uh, and the client doesn't see it, because before it, we actually messed up, it's caught. Um, and that's actually what I really like in this model, is, uh, is that interdependence. Um, And and the role of the franchisor for me is obviously guard the brand is uh, make sure that uh, the model is followed, the model is taught, uh, the model is communicated, uh, the model is followed, developed if necessary uh, for uh, new times and so on. Uh, But again, it's the franchisees who have to make it work for themselves. Uh, You cannot just lie back and... Uh, I've not been in the position yet and I'm working on that very hard but I've not been in the position yet that clients are paving their way to my front door it's not <laughs> happened so far.
0: <laughs> Brilliant well th- thank you for sharing that it's probably a, a, a little bit of a, a difficult um, question to to answer in some ways but I, I think you've you done, done a great job there so um, I want to kind of dig into that inter- interdependence though a little bit more with the other franchise partners so I I know I know the the business really well and and um, yeah from my point of view this is something that makes ERA really unique is that interdependence between franchise partners and um, I I think it's fantastic especially like you mentioned earlier you can come in as a a commercial guy or sales background and you've got that wealth of expertise that you can share and um yeah it, it, it works for both parties so t- t- tell me a little bit more about kind of your your business today and what your what you're you're doing with it internationally nationally and
1: well I actually started in two thousand nine and basically started as a uh as a sell- selling the business uh I started as a sales guy um <clears throat> but at the same time at the time there was like fourteen or fifteen uh, franchisees in the netherlands um uh, so uh, not everything was covered and I was open uh yeah to becoming a specialist in some areas as well um and uh well one of my first clients actually had uh Required me actually to do a fleet project. Uh, and obviously, being a salesman, I said, I can do that. We can do that. Um, so I found, I had to find somebody who could do it and I couldn't find anybody. So in, this end, in the end, I decided to do it myself. And uh, well, the rest is history. And the uh, past 10 years, I've really developed uh, the fleet business uh, within ERA. Uh, I dare say that together with John Bingham in the UK, uh, we are considered to be the international fleet experts uh, in the group. Um, And uh, every cross-border project is basically going through us uh, as far as uh, fleet projects uh, is concerned. Um, I still do sales. I think it's still important to, um, uh, let's say, to be on the side where uh, you are actually talking to new or potential clients uh, because that also gives you the sense of what is the de- what, what is the market developing into uh, i don't think that you can compare 2009 just following the banking crisis um and 2021 in corona times mm-hmm. you can't you can't compare those sales cycles you can't compare them um next to the technology who has developed obviously with teams meetings and zoom meetings and everything uh but also uh the attitude of clients is totally different than than in 2009 uh, if if basically any person i called in 2009 and said i can save cost then they said come along come come and have a word with us right <laughs> um and in in these days that's simply not the, uh, that's simply not what is, let's say, the concern of the companies at the moment. Uh, you and the UK have the same problems we have. We don't have the people. There's it's simply yes. a labour shortage. Uh, there's there's not enough people to do the work. Uh, there is long lead times. There is. Uh, supply chain shortages, supply chain problems. Uh, all these type of things are much higher, let's say, on the priority list of uh, the C-level people we're talking to uh, than cost savings. So uh, if you now start talking cost saving to those people, uh, the phone drops immediately and you're, you're out. Whereas if you have, let's say, the opportunity to contribute to their priorities, supply chain whatever people whatever um, you are much more uh, a conversation partner than uh, than when you're talking cost so it's that type of development you have to follow so this is why i think it's important to stay in sales as well even even if the speciality we do maybe brings most money but i think that is uh, still important um, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting
0: because i think um well i, I ha- a few years ago when we, when we were, we were able to meet face to face I met with, uh, Peter, you know, probably the most successful or largest, um, e within the ERA network. And he said to me, well, I asked him what's was the secret to your success? He said, five calls every single morning to my clients, yep. yeah, sales exactly. calls, you know, not, not even yeah. kind of just yeah. keep in touch ones. that I have every day." Peter
1: is similar. Peter is similar in the sense of, uh, he is, uh, let's say he's doing, he's having a lot of expertise and delivering, delivering the expertise through, uh let's say through his practice yeah uh, being a specialist but he is still selling yeah uh, and again that's what we do as well
0: uh, I, I think it's something that any entrepreneur has to do don't they? at the end of the day if you want like your own client. business you, you've got to sell at some point even yeah. even if you employ other people to do do it i think you've still got to yep. be the face got to be the, the kind of driving force behind yeah I agree. agree. Moving the business forward and developing it. So it's important. And and sorry, I interrupted you there. You were you're talking about um, your business in a bit more detail.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's the sales end of it, and again, I think that is important to to to, to understand why uh, clients are still are still or are buying. Um, and the other part is uh, the delivery. Uh, we do uh, well fleet projects, uh, obviously the Dutch ones, the Netherlands, but we also do international fleet projects. Um, and uh, with that, we have developed a team uh, in Europe, and now taking it global uh, to support clients uh, in any country with any request they would uh, would have on uh, regarding a fleet, uh, a fleet uh, matter. Um, and that the team is actually created with a few things in mind. First of all, have a team that can actually support clients uh, in in many countries. Uh, even though it may sound like a relatively simple uh, category, um, fleet is probably one of the most complex because it's emotional. There's a lot of regulations, a lot of taxations, different rules, different cultures in different countries, uh, different languages. My Slovak and my Czech are not, let's say, up to that level that I could read a fleet policy or a contract, um, <laughs> let alone my Finnish or my Hungarian. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and it's already hard enough to follow the tax rules in one or two countries let alone yeah. in 25 or something like that so that's why we have developed uh, that team so that uh, we can uh, we can support our clients uh, a- across the globe uh, with uh with an international team that uh, delivers consistent quality uh, because we take care that everybody follows more or less the same procedures and the same rules and the same approach um and um it has to be a sustainable business for everybody, so we have to make money on it. Uh, so that's actually where we are uh, aiming at uh, with that uh, with that group of people. Um, so yeah, and that's 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 where we are. Uh, 20, 20 people covering twenty six countries at the moment. Uh, the team behind us, uh, most of them being franchisees uh, in different countries. A few in practice uh, model uh, here in the Netherlands or in the UK. Um, that's that's where we are.
0: It's really interesting. It's, it's proving the point that you can make this whatever you want to make it, Can't, you know, it, right. in terms of e, ERA anyway, the flexibility to, yeah, you could, you could do it on your own, but actually you've, you've gone out and built a team within a network <laughs> and, and a, a team yep. a, alongside that as well. You know, it's, it's quite, um, well, quite interesting. Well, and, the
1: thought, and the thought sometimes pops up, like, why would I need ERA to do this? Uh, but on the other it uh, it, it wouldn't be as much fun <laughs> without array. So it's it's a, it's a, yeah, the, the, it's a relatively straightforward decision every time that the pops up. It doesn't pop up that often, but that once in a while you yeah. ask the question, why would I? Why would I still do this? And I think that's a that like any type of let's say continuity question that is a, this a, that's a healthy question to ask once in a while um and uh, so that's uh, that's where this one came up so uh, uh, and that's we still answer it like yeah, it's first of all more fun and second of all we don't think we would have the same success without
0: so, yeah. Yeah, it's important, isn't it? It's important to keep asking yourself that question. And um and yeah, and sure. I'm I know the network are happy that uh <laughs> you're coming up with the ERA as the option. So um I, I got a couple more questions to ask you around um your your business and role within ERA. So I'm curious to find out how you managed to raise your profile. So you said you, yourself and Sean are the go to people in Fleet. How did you achieve that? Because I'm sure everybody in the n- the network wants to be the go-to person for their category or specialism.
1: Well, it, it, it more or less developed. First of all, as I said, we, we started doing some fleet projects um, in the 2013 or 14, we got our first real international client. Um, and that meant we actually needed local people to support us. So um, we have that, uh, that's when the first, let's say, contacts international contacts actually started Um, and ever since um, i've taken every opportunity within the era network uh, to profile ourselves and including with sean including sean to profile ourselves as uh, let's say the go-to place so um being in every conference uh being on the stage probably in every conference in some way shape or form uh introducing new Developments. Uh, talking about the uh, uh, talking about the category. Talking about success stories. Um, we're doing quite a few uh, case studies. Uh, we're doing quite a few testimonials. Um, we're doing webinars internally and externally. Uh, we're profiling ourselves on LinkedIn. Uh, every a way you could actually think of uh, uh to, to to raise the profile uh within uh within era we 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 take that opportunity
0: excellent i i love to call it internal business development <laughs> because sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. It, it, you've got all those are franchise partners that you can can promote yourself too right and that's yeah
1: i was like we have we have the internal era app you know and uh, and uh, there's always there's always the opportunity to raise the question like who has experience in this um i pride myself on the fact there's very few fleet questions on that app
0: <laughs> excellent love it so um one one final thing about um your your role within the era then and that was um you you mentioned sustainability earlier um i saw a a presentation from yourself and sean around um why fleet is a category that clients should be looking at right now and sustainability played a big part in that and co2 emissions and things like that could you could you tell me how that came about as a kind of realization that this is the direction you should be kind of heading in with some clients And, and and is it actually on the forefront of clients minds
1: well, yes, it is on the forefront of client mind. and and, and, and Well, for the point was driven home by the fact that the last two years, year and a half, two years, um, every other fleet conversation we have with clients uh, with serious fleets uh, is focusing on, on sustainability. So we actually have projects right now where cost saving is not the issue, but where sustainability is the issue. Um, and that goes to the fact that it goes even so far as we we have one client in Germany at the moment where we are running a sustainability project where the fleet emissions are less than one percent of their total emissions so they're a big industrial company they have uh, a lot of uh, they're they're in the let's say the primary uh, the, the primary industry like right so if you look at the primary industries that's steel that's concrete that's glass that's plastics and aluminum that's the five mm-hmm. big ones and that's the five big co2 emitters i think that uh, in western europe 95 percent of the industry emissions come from those five industries they're in one of those five industries um so their uh their fleet emissions are like one percent less than one percent of the total emissions of that uh, of that uh, of that company so you would actually think like why would they bother yeah. Yeah. The, the the whole point is that the drive from the employees is like we are we are profiling ourselves as a company, as being a sustainable company. Why are we still driving diesel or petrol vehicles instead of electric vehicles? Why are we still doing that? Why are still we allowing that? So fleet is actually one of the most visible parts in sustainability, um, both internally, uh, again, in a company and externally um so it it, it is it's, it's and it's relatively easy to uh, let's say to implement changes there uh, compared to maybe total production changes or process changes mm. or whatever um so it's one end it's it's the visibility it's the attention um and on the other end it's the internal and external pressure that's coming uh, to this uh, to this whole thing and obviously europe uh, is also pushing uh, towards uh, zero emission vehicles in 2030 or 35 or whenever Um, so and in 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 fleet times that's that's one or two cycles of your fleet right so you have to start thinking about this you have to uh, start thinking about that whole process and 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 our our approach is like fleet vehicles have hardly changed the last hundred years the technology has hardly changed except for some digitalization and some more sensors here and there but it has hardly changed the last the next five years we'll see more change than the last hundred uh in in fleet uh, fleet perspective so uh and that that whole combination is is where that, that 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 comes into play so there's a lot of pressure uh it's very visible um and and it is relatively easy if you know what you're doing uh, then it's relatively easy at least to make some steps to move forward from there yeah so yeah that's uh, that's why we think that uh, uh and, and again we see it we see it i don't think there's any big fleet conversation we're having with sustainability is not either the main issue or at least one of the two main issues
0: yeah i, f- I find it fascinating because like you say you, yeah. under one percent of their the kind of c o two emissions you you'd think they wouldn't worry too much, but it's that visibility piece and it's probably as as a benefit for them in the in the wider sort of scope is um the, the p r aspects of it almost you know saying we've transferred over to a completely electric fleet yeah like, and that sounds quite impressive doesn't it compared to um, we've made a process change that
1: <laughs> yeah right. we made a process change that says 15% i, I just read this morning uh, an arcelormittal uh, um uh, um ceo interview in in a business newspaper where they're having 15% co2 reduction over the last 2 or 3 years in in their plant in belgium and uh, and it, it yeah it's a lot of co2 but nobody sees it right yeah and they're still being considered a big polluter they're still being seen as the big polluter um whereas if they would change to, they are changing by the way to, to electric fleets in, in the meantime uh, but if, if they would do that then that is yeah totally different picture it seems it's like very a bigger
0: different. story doesn't it
1: and- yeah <laughs> where it actually isn't but it looks it it, it looks much
0: bigger yeah. yeah yeah okay that's cool so okay um we're going to kind of change pace a little bit then and can i kind of ask you across your whole career has there been any kind of funny strange or weird moments that you, you'd be happy to share with us
1: well i thought of that question and uh, there, there are actually two things uh, uh two things that uh, let's say would let's say illustrate where i come from and that one is that um uh, when i was in in, in italy uh, again in the start of my career um, I noticed that there was a lot of cultural difference between let's say Italy and 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 let's say the northern part of Europe right yeah. so and that's stereotypical as well but it I actually noticed those differences, and and one day um, I noticed this because uh, I, I took the train. When I was in Italy, I took the train a lot instead of renting a car or whatever. I usually usually took the train, um, and I noticed that I was on a railway station and there was a uh, announcement an announcement on the um, on the speaker saying, uh, "This train is delayed twenty minutes." I go, "Oh, okay, train is delayed twenty minutes." And I noticed that uh, I took the train a lot in the Netherlands as well. Uh, when I was on a platform in the Netherlands and the train was late one minute, I was looking at my watch and I was going, well, "Where's the train?" <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that that those cultural differences were uh, were pretty uh, uh, <laughs> were, were pretty yeah evident to me at that time. And I realized that when I was looking at that on that platform at that okay? This is really funny. Whereas in in Italy, I don't care, and here I'm. Where is it? Um, So that was one. And the other one was, and that is a little bit an extension of that. Was uh, uh, Italy has the stereotypical image of having late trains, too late. But I actually have been in a train that was too early. Oh wow! <laughs> yes, and this is this is also this is also a true story. So uh, I was going back to the airport by train in the morning, and it was a very early uh, it was a very early train, so uh, my hotel didn't serve breakfast at the time. So I actually decided to go to the railway station, uh, have a sandwich there. Um, and so I arrived at a, a railway station like 30 minutes before the train was actually due. And while I was leaving the taxi, I was actually going walking on the platform uh, to uh, to go to the sandwich shop. Um, and I heard the announcer say that the train to Milan, which with my number, they, they announced trains by number there, with my number, uh, was actually ready on the platform. And I thought, that's that's early. So yeah. I went to the uh, the ticket collector and I asked him, but... It's the train to milan yes this this number to Milan. yeah i said but then you're waiting 20 minutes he said no we're leaving right now and I, okay so, <laughs> okay i got a train. i got on train so i will have my sandwich in milan though <laughs> anyway so i have a sandwich in milan so in every every station we stopped we picked up more time and um, and in the end we actually ended up in milan 45 minutes early
0: <laughs> with, with two passengers or something like that <laughs> so, well,
1: the train was actually pretty full and i go What's happening here. And uh, so I was, and and I I don't know where you've ever been in Milan Central Station, but it's like, it's it's a huge station, like an airport with with departures and arrival signs and everywhere. And I happened to be on the escalator going down to the taxi line. And I happened to look back on the arrival and departure signs. And then it says on arrivals, it said the train number so-so, which was my number from Bari, has a delay of approximately 24 hours. (laughs) <laughs> but the train oh. of the day before
0: <laughs> oh <really? laughs> oh amazing that, uh, <laughs> I don't know to 23 think minutes I mean, in, in 15 the, minutes late <laughs> in, in the UK we'd be yeah there'd be uproar in the press you know it like say one minute late and it's chaos and I think we've got a rule in place now if the, the train is more than 10 minutes late or something like this you, you, you your your trains free for the day you know you can you can claim your money back but
1: yeah it's something like an hour here or whatever if, if, or, or yeah what well, I can't remember whatever. what it is yeah, it's something yeah, like yeah, that yeah something but... like that here yeah, yeah but crazy. anyway that train that train was the day i had the train of the day before so <laughs>
0: <laughs> brilliant cool so um i also wanted to ask any um inspirational or proud moments that you've had throughout your career
1: well um um, I think that uh, one of the uh, one of uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, as I, as I mentioned it, is, is uh, the fact that in the app there's hardly any questions for fleet project, uh, yeah. being uh, considered uh, let's say the expert uh, within our ERA network, the go-to place uh, uh, for this type of project. I think that's yeah i'm pretty proud of that uh we yeah did I, I mean it's a,
0: it's a decent sized network as well isn't it you know 750 roughly people yeah. in in the yeah. network. And so. global
1: global global so, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so uh, and uh, uh, even if it is me if it isn't me like latin america they will go to our spanish colleague but the spanish colleague is group, part of our group so in the end it all comes back to us and uh, it's it, yeah, that's pretty, let's say that that's a pretty good uh, good feeling uh, to have uh, yeah. if you have achieved that. So yeah, pretty, uh, pretty proud of that one.
0: Nice, excellent. And um, finally, because we're coming to the end of the hour now. So I just wanted to find out from you, if you could give anybody who's looking into buying a franchise one piece of advice, what would that advice be? Only one piece?
1: Um. When I'm going to repeat that. It, it is up to you. Uh, you have to make it work. So you have to feel confident uh, about what you're going to do. Um, sure, you're interdependent uh, with other franchisees or the franchisor, but in the end, you have to make it a success. So you have to feel com- comfortable about that. There's no excuses if you don't. Uh, if you don't make it, so you have to be. You are accountable. That's basically it.
0: Fantastic. Henk, thank you so much for that really good advice. And um, thank you so much for sharing your your time and your story with us. And um, yeah, hope you have a great day. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So there we go. That was my conversation with Henk Posmus from Expense Reduction Analysts. Um, really enjoyed speaking to Henke. He's somebody I've, I've always quite liked from within the ERA network, and um, I, I found it interesting finding out a bit more about him as a as a person and, and his thought process. Um, I, I never realised he started out in his very early days, um, you know, with a mobile supermarket. So yeah, it, it's a picture that's going to be in my mind now. But um, his point at the end there about being accountable to yourself is one that's um yeah really important i think a a lot of the talk around the franchise and industry is that people sometimes do expect this to be a, a, a business that you you turn up and and all of a sudden you're successful and you do hear the term business in a box quite a lot that upsets some people um and to some extent it is a business in a box that you're buying into in a a franchising brand but it's no guarantee that people are going to come to you just because you open up shop doesn't necessarily mean that the doors are going to be flooding in Hank made that point really clearly at the end there still every day he's out there trying to generate business for himself and working hard to do that It's it's down to him it's his responsibility um, so that's an important thing to think about if you're you're looking to buy into any franchise model um, the other thing that I found quite interesting about what he said kind of earlier on about the due diligence process is, um, what well, well, I realized he perhaps had forgotten about some of the detail. And I know it, in many cases, people get bogged down in the detail and negotiating over small points on a contract and, you know, not really sure whether or not they want to go ahead because of clause 12.1a or something like this, you know. He's now running a successful business a very successful business and it sounded like he'd forgotten about some of the detail which is quite cool really you know it just shows you that that really isn't that important all the time sure check it through make sure you get it checked properly by a franchise lawyer but um, don't get hung up on it if it's a decision that you're making that you you 90 percent there you know it doesn't always matter that much um, and then finally, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and it was really nice to hear a, a co- contrary point of view to mine, and that's that he didn't necessarily get on with the, the, the person who's going to be supporting him directly, the country manager in this case. So uh, within the uh, large international franchises, what they'll have is typically somebody within the country who helps to, to, to support the franchise partners in that specific country. And Henk didn't actually get on with his country manager is um contrary to my belief that you have to get on with the 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 people that you're working with but i guess that opened up my eyes to realize that okay the franchisor isn't one person it can be a number of people uh, that you're working with and as long as overall you have the feeling you can work with them that's that's just as important as as the, the person who's directly supporting you so there we go. That, 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 that was the conversation with Henk. Um hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did and this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure you check out thefranchise.com where you can find out a little bit about some of the brands that we've been speaking to, but it'll also have all of the previous episodes of the disenfranchised podcast on there. So thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you on the next one. Bye-bye.